Okay, so welcome to our second session on the five aggregates. It's nice to see all of you. We get to hear the Friday night music a little bit um, out on the square, but I notice it doesn't come too much through the door, huh? Okay. So uh, the first thing I want to talk about was just any um, reflections or comments you had from uh, the homework exercise of looking at the comparison of the five aggregates to these various uh, essenceless analogies. Would anybody like to share anything that they noticed from that? Yeah. Okay, so Well, I mean, the the main aggregates for me are feeling and perceptions. Okay. I mean, everything else, but feeling and perceptions are. And so, <coughs> it, it, it is easy for me, I mean, relatively easy, you know, practicing uh, to see these bubbles of, the, the feeling beings bubbles, you know, water. Uh-huh. Because yeah. they come and go. But I was wondering, it's not the same though when I, I, I am subjective to the same experience day after day after day. So let's put it in this way, okay, very, very, in, in a very um, practical way. So there is someone at work that is just <laughs> bugs me. Right? Okay, yeah. So the first feeling is always like, oh, I don't want to be here. And, and so try to get over that, I can see that, right? <coughs> but at what point that feeling really goes away? When it's every day you're faced to the same thing. So, so if feeling about something, an ice cream or chocolate, okay, fine, it will disappear and that's over. But when, when it keeps repeating, the, the experience it keeps repeating, it feels like, well, I know it will, it will disappear the moment that I move out or that I, that I die, but I mean, well, what, you know? Okay, yeah, this is a good point. So um, you're pointing to a process that can happen in the mind where if we get a repeated stimulus that's unpleasant in your case. Remember that feeling tone, feeling is not emotion. So feeling tone is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, so you get an unpleasant hit from seeing a certain person at work. Um, and if you get that kind of repeatedly, it will start to turn into a story. You know, it will sort of grow into, not that you're necessarily telling a whole thing, but you have a conditioned response to seeing that. And it can persist because it's built, it's um, kind of bolstered in the back of your mind with a bunch of stuff about, well, I've always had this response, I had it last week, I had it yesterday, there it is, and this person, and if you were asked, you could probably name five reasons why this person is annoying. So you have a, a view or a story that's built up, and so that's the fourth of the aggregates, the sankaras, um, the construction of a narrative around something. Even if it's not a 
literal narrative in the moment, it's in the back of your mind. And that's the one that's considered to be essenceless, like if you were to, like a banana tree, if you were to kind of pull away the pieces of that, you would find that there was sort of nothing left in the middle. But I guess what I'm pointing to is that you're, you're describing a different aggregate than, um, than feeling, yeah. But they, they all intertwine. And uh, the, the point of that was not to say you got the wrong aggregate, it was to say they're connected and they, they turn into each other. Um, they're, it's not quite the right way to say it, but they can change in proportion if we have a lot of one of them. Yeah. But the question is, how do you deal with that? I mean, because it's over time, right? So, yeah, how do so, you... <laughs> so then what we have is we notice that the mind has in it built up stuff like that. Everybody has stories that they're carrying around like that, or impressions, or repeated experiences that they have to have based on who they're with, basically. And so then um, the task, and, the, and really something that practice prepares us well for, is deconditioning those things. They're conditioned. They were built up by experience. That's how they came into being. And then the deconditioning is through seeing, for the most part. Uh, seeing them again and again. They may not go away, especially if you have the repeated stimulus, but with enough strength of attention, they don't stick. You know, they will arise, but they have no power to affect what you say, what you do, <coughs> even your mood, and what you think. So it might just be, oh, there's that unpleasant feeling again. I'm still happy this morning. <laughs> and that's how the deconditioning can happen. Yeah. Yeah, Maggie. I just have a similar thing that happens. I've brought the, the culprit here. It's a very long purse strap, and it wraps itself around everything. Oh. <laughs> and I like the purse, so uh -huh. I've had it for years. And I've been practicing with that, because the expectation for a long time was that it wouldn't do that. Well, I finally come to the belief that it will do that. Actually, that's just how it is. <laughs> that's just how it is. And so I just have to laugh at it. Uh -huh. I find that a good medicine. Yeah. Like, like you were Humor saying. Humor oh, is very this, good in this practice. Here's this feeling again. Oh, okay. Yep. Thank you. That's a good example. Heidi. I had a good volitional formation example where I was talking to my mother who is 101 and I love her a lot, but she is still really annoying. And uh, she pushed my button, I got impatient, I snapped at her. And we hung up without, you know, a, a good resolution. And I watched myself for about 16 hours, creating the story of how wrong she was. You know, the self-justification story. Then I finally, you know, was like, okay. So I called her up, apologized. And then I watched my, the feeling of, real relief and feeling so happy and feeling so good and then watching that eventually disperse right yeah but it was it was real interesting how the the flip was so quick once i decided okay enough with this silly self-justification and just let it go apologize yeah that's a beautiful example and it's an example of how an action affects the mind you oh know, yeah just and I was, I was karma. very aware that I was feeling unease, right. but I was not, for quite several hours, not ready to eat humble pie and, you know, just apologize and just let it be, you know. Yeah. Even though I was making myself suffer quite...
consciously. Right. It's so yeah. weird the way the mind will do that. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And so you have enough background in the practice yeah, well. <laughs> to, um, to work with that. That's wonderful. Thank you. All right. Good. Those were all great. Those were all great. So we're starting to see that these things are real. They're practical in our lives. I mean, this this funny language, right? And but they're um, it's really just the stuff of our world that the Buddha was pointing at. And I'm glad he used kind of language like that. In that, that's um, it's sort of general enough that it's still relevant this this long into the future if we understand what he's pointing toward. Okay, so I thought we would do a little bit um, longer meditation just to help us settle in and have have some background into what we're going to talk about today. <coughs> so why don't you find a posture that's um, upright and also relaxed, settle in for a period of sitting. And just... If you're comfortable, you can close your eyes. Just feel the body sitting. Maybe take a couple of long, slow, deep breaths. And on the out breath, relax the body. So let the shoulders drop, let the face relax, belly relax, arms and legs soften. you like to feel the sensations of the breath as your meditation object, you can connect with those simple sensations, just naturally breathing in and out, or some other object, your body sitting, for example. start with a little bit of settling in, of gathering the mind. So staying with the object and if the mind gets distracted or begins to think or you notice yourself falling asleep, just bringing the object back into the foreground. Settling the mind.
As you continue to sit with bodily sensations of some kind, the breath or the body sitting, without making a big change, just turn the mind toward the changing nature of the experience. So just noticing the arising and passing of different types of experience. But try to keep it in the realm of form, the realm of the body. So for example, with the breath, there's a touch of the air on the nostrils or the upper lip, so there's an arising of that first feeling. And then it changes. There's maybe coolness arising in the nostrils, and then a sensation down through the nose and the throat, expansion of the chest, the shift of the clothing against the skin. And then as the outbreath begins, more of a relaxation through the chest cavity. So there's a continual change, or you can even see it as a rapid arising and passing of many different scintillations of experience, like a kaleidoscope almost. And it's possible to rest with that, to sit in a position of stillness while these experiences arise and pass against the backdrop of attention. changing nature of physical experience.
gently returning to just a feeling of the whole body. I'd like to shift to noticing feeling tone and experience. And we'll do it as a, a body sweep. So noticing first pleasant feelings. So any pleasant feelings in the area of the head or the face. Just notice, is there anything that feels kind of open or relaxed, warm? And down through the neck area, scanning for pleasant feelings. Into the shoulders, down the arms, hands. Moving into the chest area, are there any pleasant feelings through the torso? Down through the belly area. Hips. Thighs. Calves. And down into the feet. And then starting again with the feet, we'll scan for unpleasant feeling tones. So attuning the mind to any places of tension or where the temperature isn't right or feelings of pushing or pulling or burning in the feet. Scanning up through the calves. Thighs, hips, into the belly, up through the midsection and the chest area, the hands, any unpleasant feelings in the arms. Up through the shoulders and the neck and into the head area. And then starting again with the head, this is the most subtle. Notice if there are any neutral feelings through the head or the face. So places that you can feel, but they don't really have much feeling tone. Down through the neck area, into the shoulders. Often the touch of clothing is pretty neutral. It's just kind of there. Down through the arms. hands, neutral feelings in the chest area, down 
through the abdomen, belly. Hips, thighs, calves, and feet. So now just opening the whole body, having familiarized with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in the body. Just opening the attention to the whole body and sitting with the changing nature of feeling tone. A moment of pleasant, a moment of neutral, a few moments of unpleasant, and then it's back to pleasant somewhere else. something that feels like it's solid and unpleasant if we put the attention there kind of breaks up maybe into pulses of unpleasant but neutral in between just the changing nature of feeling tone Gently letting go of the, the perception of feeling. And I'll just offer some reflections to end the sit. So first, please consider the unreliability of bodily sensation and feeling tone. If you were counting on it being a certain way, that would be a problem. It's always changing. This is not a secure resting place. You might also consider if there's any weariness or oppressiveness of the continual changing nature. Even pleasure gets a little tiresome. So just noticing that about this changing experience. And 
yet that's how it is, changing. going to be looking at impermanence and the resulting unreliability of experience and how that leads to this quality called disenchantment, which I know is not, is given in a different word in the text. And I actually brought a little thing about that for us to, I'll read it later, about that word revulsion. So about disenchantment. Um, I want to say first that the um, this book, the Samyutta Nikaya, where a lot of the readings came from this time, I just want to say what that, um, like what position it has in the Pali Canon. You may have listened to it on the overview of the Pali Canon, but as a refresher, um, that book is generally aimed at more experienced practitioners who have who are aiming for liberation you know it's like they've they're convinced and they want to know okay how do i how do i actually get there so that um i say that to point out why the the suttas that um are in there tend to be not all of them but they tend to be somewhat dry and analytical because they're for you know they're not as, as much of a story although one of them was kind of humorous we had this week right so that's just the, the nature. Um, this particular session this evening will stay more in this traditional realm to give the background. Um, and then uh, the next two sessions, we're going to talk about constructing the self and the important topic of constructing our views. <laughs> so those, uh, those should be interesting. So we talked last time about these five images for the khandas. And in each case, the image chosen was said to be one that vanishes and disappears and doesn't endure. Um, The Buddha points out how each of these aggregates is essenceless, was the word used in one of the translations. And just for to understand this word, it's another word we don't use a lot necessarily, but essence, or sara in (coughs) Pali, was a, a big deal at the time of the Buddha. Um, and people wondered what what the essence was and what is the true self and things like that. And even here in the West, we um, we have a different kind of essence. We believe that we believe in a materialistic universe of really existing objects, and so we have our own form of essence. So it's maybe useful to know, as we go through these teachings, that uh, the Buddha was. Um, he was just, his teachings can, are put in the realm of what's called phenomenology and not ontology. So I'm not trying to get philosophical, but just so that you understand that the Buddha was pointing at phenomenology, which means experience. It means 
the actual lived experience of how it is to be you, <laughs> have your body and your mind, um, and to be living, you know, in the world that they ex- that those passing through your mind. Basically, he wasn't really trying to create a view of the universe. Um, he wasn't really trying to create uh, his version of physics uh, that describes how everything is and how everything works. He was actually talking about how it is to be you. <laughs> and that is, because um, that's where the suffering is, right? I teach suffering and the end of suffering, is what he said. He, doesn't say, he didn't say, I give you a complete model, model and map of the universe. So that's just helpful to be aware of. I think we talked on, about that last time, that these five aggregates are a description of experiences where we tend to cling. They're not necessarily the sum total of the universe. So it's always pointed towards what we're experiencing. Okay, so what we experience, as we just did in the meditation, is that things change. <laughs> There's a lot of change in our world that, go, that we go through. And the Buddha picked this up, and he used, he used it. Anybody can see change. If you sit for five minutes, you've experienced some kind of change. And so he picked that up and said, this is really important. You should actually observe this. I want to read a couple of quotes that talk about how seeing the arising and passing away of the five aggregates leads to liberation, which is what we just did on two of them. We looked at the arising and passing away of form, bodily experience, and the arising and passing away of feeling tone. So this is from uh, Ian 4.41. And what, this is Tanjeff's translation, so it uses his words for these things. And what is the development of concentration that, when developed and pursued, leads to the ending of the effluence? That's a code word for liberation. Leads to the ending of uh, the influxes or the outflows or the effluence. This is the case where a practitioner remains focused on arising and passing away with reference to the five clinging aggregates, such as form, such its origination, such its passing away. Such as feeling, such its origination, such its passing away, such as perception, such as its origination, such its passing away, such are fabrications or volitional formations, such their origination, such their passing away, such as consciousness, such its origination, such its disappearance, or passing away. This is the development of concentration that, when developed and pursued, leads to the ending of the effluence. So it's pretty clear that sitting and watching, arising and passing, it's not, it's not anything obscure. <laughs> you can feel it right there in the breath, coming and going. And if it, that is really observed diligently for a long time in a concentrated state, um, I didn't say a long time here, the implication is that will lead to the disappearance of all the difficulties in our mind. You can say, what? How can that, I mean, why, why would that be? And so we're going to look at some of the suttas we read and draw that out a little bit. It's also maybe worth pointing out um, that there's a sutta that talks about the prior Buddhas before Gotama. There were other ones. <laughs> and uh, one, of the, one of them described is the Buddha Vipassi. And Vipassi gained his liberation by observing the arising and passing away of the five aggregates. So this is from the sutta that talks about the prior Buddhas. Vipassi, the bodhisattva, bodhisattva, dwelled in the discernment of the arising and passing away of the five groups 
dependent on grasping. So this is a different translation, translator, obviously, but we can recognize the same term. Five groups depending on grasping, such as form, such as the coming to be a form, such as its passing away, such as feeling, such as the coming to be a feeling, such as its passing away, and similarly for the other three. And for him, abiding in the discernment of the arising and passing away of the five groups depending on grasping, not long was it before his heart, void of grasping, was set free from the intoxicants, which is the same as the effluents. So, sorry about all the long words, but it says right there that uh, one of the prior Buddhas became a Buddha doing this meditation, so it's important. <laughs> so this is all part of the larger teaching that in general, I mean, the seeing of impermanence is, is a very strong theme throughout the suttas, again and again. Um, people are asked to notice that things change. So, this is um, from my teacher, Gil. Uh, the word for impermanence, by the way, or inconstancy, is anicca. It says, anicca is not an idea or belief one must adopt. Rather, it is a perception, sanya, <laughs> that one dwells observing. In fact, here's a quote from another sutta. And what, ananda, is the perception of impermanence? One dwells observing impermanence in the five aggregates of clinging. This is called the perception of impermanence. So... It's interesting, right, in that observing impermanence, what is that? It's a perception. It's the third aggregate, the perception of uh, the aggregate of perception. And so we're training, we're training our perception to see impermanence. We also train it to see unsatisfactoriness, and we train it to see not-self. And so this is a way that we're basically using one of the aggregates, perception, to take apart attachment to the aggregates. So we talked about this last time, is that these things are, we're not getting away from them. You know, abandoning them doesn't mean throwing them away. Oh, let's get rid of the aggregates and we'll just use something else. No, this is what we got. <laughs> so we'll use it in a certain way. We're going to use the aggregates in a certain way, such that the mind is able to see through uh, how experience is constructed and to let go of the suffering that goes with that. So I'm not saying we're going to get that just from a cognitive description, but that's kind of the, that's kind of what's going on in the process of practice. So let's take a look though at one of the suttas. Let's look at number 2266. Question. Impermanent. Yes. Okay. So the five aggregates, my first uh, impression was that the five aggregates is dukkha. Yes, that's how they're defined, isn't it? Right. There's the five clinging aggregates or dukkha. Okay, but but it's not. It could be dukkha, but it could be the also the way of liberation. Yeah, it's part of the path. Okay. they can be made into the path. Right. If if they're dukkha when they're grasped, but if they're not grasped, they're not dukkha. I mean, when the after the Buddha was awakened, um, so no more grasping in his experience. He still had the five aggregates until he died because he was awakened before his body ran out, basically. And so he had form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, or some kind of formations. And, um, but he didn't have any grasping to them. He was just literally letting them play out, if you will. Or use them. Or, he or, used or, them. or use them. Yeah, sometimes he used them for teaching, out of compassion. He would use them uh, to instruct people. 
um, he would speak such that people could hear the Dharma. So yeah, he used them. But you also use it for to, to liberate yourself. To yeah, and befo so before awakening, we can right. use the aggregates as to construct a path. So we have one choice, we construct a self, <laughs> that's the suffering, or we construct the path. We have to construct something. Because until we're done constructing, we're going to construct. So this is, um, this is the trick of practice, is that we have this, this, this it has to self-liberate this thing. We can't, we're not getting rid of it, so we're going to rearrange it in a way that uh, is liberating. This, is, this isn't often how it's talked about in regular Dharma talks, but this is actually, if you read the text, this is how it's laid out. It's like, this is the process to take apart yourself <laughs> using the, the elements that you use to construct yourself. Just stop doing that, construct something different, and it will be better. Not that that's easy, <laughs> but that's the idea. It's kind of fun process. So, okay. So let's take a look at 2266 um, impermanent. Who would like to begin reading that one? Yeah, Brad. At Sabati, then a certain bhikkhu approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma in brief. Bhikkhu, you should abandon desire for whatever is impermanent. Understood, Blessed One. Understood, Fortunate One. In what way, Bhikkhu, do you understand in detail the meaning of what was stated by me in brief? Form, Venerable Sir, is impermanent. I should abandon desire for it. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. I should abandon desire for it. It is in such a way, Venerable Sir, that I understand in detail the meaning of what was stated by the Blessed One in Greek. Good, good, Bhikkhu. It is good that you understand in detail the meaning of what was stated by me in brief. Form is impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. You should abandon desire for it. It is in such a way that the meaning of what was stated by me in brief should be understood in detail. And that bhikkhu became one of the arahants. Yeah, thank you. So, arahant, so that means fully liberated. He became liberated. So there's a lot of um, these dot, dot, dots in here, which means that something has been skipped because it's repeated from earlier. So um, I decided that was okay. The essence of the, see, we're talking about essence. The essence of the text was, was here. But um, it's an interesting situation, just for a little background is that um, there's several cases, a fair, a fair number of them, where somebody comes because they're about to go off on retreat, and they come to the Buddha and they say, please give me some nugget of the Dharma. You know, please teach me the Dharma in brief so that I may go and practice and attain liberation. And so the Buddha, presumably in his wisdom, sees what they need in their mind, and he gives them some nugget. And usually it's something like this, you know, um, you should abandon desire for whatever is impermanent. That's pretty brief, but that's, that's it, you know, if you could actually do that, right? And so it's kind of interesting to go through and look at all the cases where this happens, and they're all pretty much similar to this. And so, um, and then usually the person says, oh, great, I get it. And the Buddha says, well, wait a minute, just let me know, um, how did you really understand that? And so this monk, 
bhikkhu means monk, but I usually substitute practitioner because we're all practicing in that way. Um, and so he says, so he, he says, well, the way I understand what you said is that the five aggregates are what you're referring to. Those are impermanent. And when it says abandoned desire for them, I mean, it doesn't literally mean like you stop wanting to eat. <laughs> it's, you know, again, this is this language where it means you should abandon um, the word there for desire is tanha, which is like that thirsty, needing, grasping kind of desire. And we know what that feeling is. We, we have it about things from time to time, and it's not pleasant. So um, he says, all of these things are impermanent, and therefore you should abandon this grasping desire for them. And practicing in that way liberated this particular monk. So that's pretty cool. I kind of wish that I could have a Buddha to give me the <laughs> Dharma in brief that would be perfect for my mind. <laughs> but yeah. So how do you, I mean, how does this sit for you? Yeah. Sherry, is yeah, it? Yeah, Sherry. Thank you. Um, so for me, the, um, I want more detail. Yeah, so this was the Dharma in brief. Like it's just repeating back yeah. what he said. I mean, and, and it's, it's so kind of big. It's like abandoned desire for the things that are impermanent. Okay, I get it. I mean, how do I do that? Yeah. Things are impermanent, which are these five claims. But, but... Um, is the, is are there other places in the teachings where we really get into how do how do we how do we cling and how do we start to yeah uh, yeah and some some of the other texts we're going to look at um, point in that direction so um, we cling because that's actually the next text we cling because things um, have desirable things about them. You know, they actually do. The aggregates are not bad. They actually do have good things about them. Um, think of your favorite food. It's a good thing. You like it. Um, this A lot of effort went into making this center a beautiful, quiet place to be. And that's all constructed out of form, basically. And so there are nice things. There are good things in the world. And so because of that, though, and because our minds are have the tendency, they have the latent desire, they have the latent tendency toward grasping, is that we can get caught on things. Um, and so, you know, that's the, that's the reason, basically, why we grasp, is that there is actually, there are actually appealing things, and our mind has the tendency to grasp, and so, lo and behold, those things just hook together. And then, how we go about letting go. Unfortunately, there isn't like a magic button that you just press and make yourself let go. It's not really a conscious volitional process. Maybe a little bit. You know, we can put in a little bit of effort and, you know, not buy the donut in the store when we see it. Um, we can do that with effort, but that's not really deeply letting go of sense desire. That's just um, not falling for the temptation of that particular donut. And it does weaken it a little bit. But basically, over time, what we have to do is just see again and again what the Four Noble Truths, that when we grasp, we suffer. <laughs> and so we're like, oh, I want that. I'm going to grasp it because it's good or because I think it will be good. And then it's like, oh, but it kind of hurts to grasp. You know, like Heidi said, she was in a situation where she knew that, that it, what, what was going on wasn't ideal for her. There was some grasping there and therefore some pain, but it wasn't like that was enough to just, you know, make it go away instantly. 
And so we have to just observe again and again, and then there's a process where the heart, the wisdom of the heart, realizes the Four Noble Truths at that moment. It realizes that not grasping is going to be the solution. And if we do that enough, and deeply enough, uh, we, can, we can free the mind. But it's a process. But we get freer and freer. It's not like you have to wait and wait and wait and wait, and then you finally, you know, every moment we can let go of something at some level, and that's all good. Does that help a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're right. This is very brief. Mostly the point of it was to um, emphasize how important seeing impermanence is. This is just a sutta that points out that that's really key, is to watch the impermanence of these five aggregates. So maybe then it's a good moment to go on to the pleasure and pain of the aggregates. And that was what the um, second sutta was about, number 60. Let's take a look at that one. Mahali. And this speaks to the point that you brought up, Sherry. And so when we go to pleasure and pain, we're now moving to feeling tone. We're looking at how do the aggregates, I mean, feeling tone is one of the aggregates, but each of the aggregates have feeling tone, right? We observe the body, and there's a pleasant or an unpleasant sensation in the body. So we see how they're all kind of interrelated. Um, Would somebody like to begin reading 2260? Yeah, Sarah. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Basali in the great wood in the hall with the peaked roof. Then Mahali the Lachabi approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, Saranya Kasapa speaks thus, There is no cause or condition for the defilement of beings. Beings are defiled without cause or condition. There is no cause or condition for the purification of beings. Beings are purified without cause or condition. What does the Blessed One say about this? Okay, let's pause for a moment. Um, Purana Kasapa. So that is um, a reference to a person. We don't need to go into great detail about him, but basically he was another teacher. He was a competing teacher for the Buddha. And so he was another wandering ascetic. And he taught um, he taught that action has he taught the sort of the theory of non-action is that actions don't have any particular effect. You know, there's no uh, there's no cause or condition. Things are not um, there's no lawfulness to the universe. And there were a number of other um, teachers at the time who taught things about why things happen and, you know, philosophies of the time. There were also um, teachers who had different ideas than Purana Kasapa also. And so yeah, every once in a while the Buddha had to kind of... Um, uh, compete isn't the right word, but... Um, put his, his ideas out in a way that would um, uh, answer the challenge of other beings. There's a wonderful sutta, um, DN2, which is the fruits of the holy life, that talk about six other, I think it's six, either five or six, other teachers and what they believe. And the Buddha um, is basically refuting all of them in that sutta. But here we just have this one, Purana Kasapa is one of those in DN2. And so he... Um, so basically this person comes and says, well, this person says that there's no cause or condition for bad karma and there's no cause or condition for purification and, and creating better karma. What do you think about that? And so 
the Buddha has to answer. And would, who would like to start reading his answer? Yeah. Sharon, is that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. There is, Mahali, a cause and condition for the defilement of beings. Beings are defiled with cause and condition. There is a cause and condition for the purification of beings. Beings are purified with cause and condition. But, Venerable Sir, what is the cause and condition for the defilement of beings? How is it that beings are defiled with cause and condition? Okay, let's pause for just a moment. Um, so basically the Buddha doesn't buy what Purana Kasapa says. He says, no, there is a cause and condition. There is lawfulness to the universe. There are reasons why um, things happen in a certain way. And so then the person says, oh, good, well, tell me what they are. And so I, I apologize a little bit for the word defiled. It just means, you know, that has associations in Western religion. It doesn't mean like you're inherently impure. Remember what I said about phenomenology? It means that you're, you're experiencing something that is unwholesome at that moment due to causes and conditions. So, okay. Um, so, so the defilement of beings, say a little bit more about what does the defilement mean? It means why do some people have greed and hatred and delusion? Unskillfulness. Yeah, unskillfulness. You know, is there any reason why certain public figures seem to have a lot of hatred. You know, why is that? Um, and why do some other people that we know not have so much of that? Is it just random? Um, there's no cause for it? And the Buddha says, no, there is a cause, actually. Um, there's a reason for that. Now, in the West, we have our own views about this. People will talk about genetics or cultural upbringing or something. This is our view of how things come about, our theory of action, if you will. Um, the Buddha believed in karma. So, um, we'll go on. If you'd like to continue sharing, you could, but you don't have to. Okay. Okay. If, Mahali, this form were exclusively suffering, immersed in suffering, steeped in suffering, and if it were not also steeped in pleasure, beings would not become enamored with it. But because form is pleasurable, immersed in pleasure, steeped in pleasure, and it's not steeped only in suffering, beings have become enamored with it. By being enamored with it, they are captivated by it, and by being captivated by it, they are defiled. (coughs) This, Mahali, is a cause and condition for the defilement of beings. It is thus that beings are defiled with cause and condition. Yeah, so, you know, what is, can we work our way through this language? What is this saying? Basically the second noble truth. Yeah, that that we grasp, but why do we grasp? Some things are actually pleasurable, and we like pleasure, and so we grasp them because, and if the mind is not free of the underlying tendency, it doesn't talk about that here, but, you know, basically we become caught by things. And, you know, he's he's saying quite openly, he's only talking about form, and then goes on to the other four, but we won't read all of those. Um, He says, there's good things in the world. There's pleasurable things, nice, nice forms, nice sounds, nice sights, nice touches, nice tastes. Of course, 
So we said, and, and that's why people get caught. <laughs> it's pretty simple. <laughs> so I kind of like that. And he says it's not exclusively suffering. Not exclusively suffering. So then he goes on and says the same thing for feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. You know, because they're not only bad, we get stuck with them. So let's, um, stuck by them. So let's skip down to the one that says, but, venerable sir, what is, who would like to read that one? Okay, Chase. But, venerable sir, what is the cause and condition of the purification of beings? How is it that beings are purified with cause and condition? If, Mahali, this form were exclusively pleasurable, immersed in pleasure, steeped in pleasure, and if it were not also steeped in suffering, beings would not experience revulsion. Read disenchantment. disenchantment. <laughs> but because form is suffering, immersed in suffering, steeped in suffering, and is not steeped only in pleasure, beings experience revulsion. Disenchantment. Experiencing disenchantment, they become dispassionate, and through dispassion, they are purified. This Mahali is a cause and condition to the purification of beings. It is thus that beings are purified with cause and condition. Okay, so we'll stop there. And I'm not um, uh, imposing my own view, by the way. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the person who put revulsion, um, published a paper where he said that he was retracting that and wanted to replace it with disenchantment, but too late, this was already printed. <laughs> so I'm only going with his wish, with the editor, the, the translator's wish on this. Um, okay, so, so what is this one saying? You know, what, what's he saying about the purification? Maggie. Because not only is there pleasure, but there's displeasure. There's yep. bad things. Form has form bad things too. Yep. That we um, become disenchanted with it. We can become disenchanted. Right. There's the potential for that. That potential yeah. there, and that you know, for those who do, they can self-purify in effect. Yeah, that's right. If we notice, right? If we if we don't just get caught in. Um, uh, grasping the other way. Remember that pushing away is a form of grasping, right? Because it's also um, reactive and uh, not fully engaging with the object. So there's that middle ground. It's not quite the opposite, right? Because um, if they were exclusively suffering and all we did was say, no, 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 bad, that would keep us stuck to them. He doesn't quite go into detail in that here. But it's just as Maggie said, is that because there are things about form that we realize are not so great, uh, then we have the possibility of waking up and not being totally enchanted with form. It's not totally great. Actually, you know, um, actually my back hurts sometimes. It's like, you know, even though I enjoy my body when I'm able to walk or go surfing or running or whatever I like to do, um, the days where my back is hurting, it's not that great to have a body or whatever. So we have the possibility, with if we have some wisdom, of experiencing what's called disenchantment, of not being totally enamored, captivated by form. That's what disenchantment means in this case, is that we see it for how it is, sometimes pleasurable, sometimes painful. Yeah. So, um, It seems like the, it's kind of cumulative also, kind of to the original question tonight, in terms of, you know, if, if we experience um, sensual pleasures and then we start to really consume those and be captivated clinging, 
then that impacts our feeling sense, which then becomes our perspective, and we're looking and searching, and then yeah. the story of oh, beautiful, this, right? I'm the person who likes such and such, and I gotta have more of it, or I'll die. Right. Yeah. Because my identity is that I am the whatever. That's the process. And then, th then the process is also in reverse. Mm -hmm. If we're in this totally caught up at the volitional formation level, and we have all of our stories. Somebody has to pop to our bubble. Unwinding it. Yeah, somebody has to point out and say, you know, actually that's not that great. That's not that pleasant. Um, or that's not helping you. You know, and we can see this in cases, I mean, in sort of blunt cases of addiction, for example. You know, people have gone for something that's a temporary pleasure or that alleviates a pain temporarily, however they're seeing it that when it goes too far is obviously causing a lot of harm. Um, from the outside it's obvious. And there's a need to wake up to that and not be enchanted that this thing is helping me actually, because it's not. And so that's kind of, you know, maybe a, that's an example that we can understand easily, just cognitively, but this, it gets subtler and subtler through practice. Is what it, am I? What am I holding on to? Is it is it actually suffering that I hold on to the view of myself as, you know, a Dharma teacher? Wow, you know, that's actually a pretty good thing um, in the overall picture, I think. But if I'm grasping that, there will be suffering somewhere, and so it gets more and more subtle into things that are actually positive in general, but you know, etc. But um, we have to be careful. We have to look carefully again and again for, is there any clinging here? How could I do this without, without any grasping? And then it goes on, just to complete the sutta, it does the same for the other four aggregates. They're not all exclusively pleasurable either. So this points toward a shift that comes through Dharma practice, with working with feeling tone. Um, there's a little change that can happen, a little change that's a big change, is that when we see that pleasant and unpleasant are not very reliable, um, like for example in that meditation, did you have any control over totally total pleasure or total displeasure? It's like, you couldn't, right? You can, you can do a little bit. You can you know, shift your position, and, and you can. That's fine to do so that you're not in pain. Um, but in general, um, we don't have control over those inputs completely. And so we start to realize that that's not reliable. Uh, we get disenchanted with thinking that we're going to be able to get 100% pleasure, even though we try, we really try to get 100% pleasure, but it doesn't work that way. And so there's a shift that happens at some point when we become disenchanted with feeling tone as a basis for our lives, maximize pleasure, minimize pain, as the only basis of our life, we make a shift we realizing that wholesome unwholesome is the balance that's much better. You know, let's instead of going for pleasure, let's go for wholesome or skillful. And it happens there's a fair amount of overlap. Many skillful things are pleasant, so that works pretty well, although there's some skillful things that aren't totally pleasant and we have to have the maturity to choose those anyway. And it's also true that many things that are unskillful or uh, that are unpleasant and unskillful kind of go together. But there are some unskillful things uh, that are pleasant, and there are, and, and so we have to have the maturity to, um, you know, to also, to, to let go of those. 
So we, cha- we make a, a change in our basis from pleasant, unpleasant as the key to wholesome, unwholesome, which we have a lot more uh, say in. Mm-hmm. And that's the development of ethics and the development of mind training. Yeah, well, I think Heidi. going back to the, the sentence we read before in Perma, the, the key is noticing that everything, even the pleasant, is impermanent. Exactly. So if we had just abandoned, I mean, abandoned desire for everything impermanent, well, what isn't impermanent when you get right down to it? Yeah. So. What isn't? <laughs> so it's, um, that's, that's why that's a very deep instruction and not one that we complete easily. But it's worth considering, you know, how would I not grasp anything that's impermanent? Wow. And yet still, you know, live your life because it's not wholesome to allow things that are supporting you to fall away, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's uh, some art to that. Yeah. Um, what is the the word in Pali for unpleasant, and does, how is that relative to dukkha? Um, unpleasant is called what is it? Um, I think it might actually be sukha and dukkha might be what's used. Yeah, the so things it's the that same are. Word? It's, I think it's the same word. Remember that we said last time, dukkha is an adjective meaning not satisfactory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sukha, yeah. Because I think the word for neutral feeling tone is asuka madukkha, which means neither pleasant nor unpleasant. <laughs> or is it adukkha masuka? I don't know which, but that's a good question. Yeah. And then wholesome unwholesome is kusala akusala. It's a different word. Kusala, K-U-S-A-L-A, wholesome or skillful. Okay, so let's go on to um, this idea of direct knowing. And so, you know, what we've set up for is okay, you're going to notice your experience, you're going to feel experience and notice how much it changes. How do we do that? Often we're filtering things through concepts. So there's this, I- this idea of direct knowing. Let's do the 22-24, the third reading. Directly knowing. Who would like to read that one? Without directly knowing and fully understanding form, without becoming dispassionate toward it and abandoning it, one is capable of destroying suffering. Without directly knowing and fully understanding feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, without becoming dispassionate toward it and abandoning it, one is incapable of destroying suffering. By directly knowing and fully understanding form, by becoming dispassionate toward it and abandoning it, one is capable of destroying suffering. By directly knowing and fully understanding feeling, 
perception, volitional formations, consciousness, by becoming dispassionate toward it and abandoning it, one is capable of destroying suffering. Okay. Yeah, so this is kind of a, one of those rather analytical, dry <laughs> suttas. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you think this this directly knowing means? Having experience of. Having experience of, and what is that, like, what is that like? Living it, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, go ahead, Heidi. I think it's also it's good, Val. Um, yeah. being aware of the characteristics of uh, impermanence and uh, unsatisfactoriness and non-self in every, every experience so that you don't get caught in the pleasure of it. Okay, so there's some wisdom involved in the background. Yeah, um, I think you're right on a um, kind of in a background way, like there should be that sense of training perception in that way. I'm a little concerned um, that for a new meditator, thinking in terms of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self could lead to cognitive knowing, which is what which is opposed to directly knowing. Yeah, mm -hmm. I tend to think of direct knowing as being in the body, almost a very sensual experience. Visceral is another word I like for it. So, you know, it's like we can know sort of vaguely what anger is, but um, there's a moment in practice where we become maybe strong enough in our attention to actually feel anger. It's like this burning, you know, feeling in the gut or whatever, however it manifests for you. And you realize, wow, this is really unpleasant. You know, no wonder I tend to strike out when I'm angry. It's because I can't hold this horrible feeling of it. Or the feeling of, you know, shame or something. Uh, when we carry that, to, to know that directly in the body is um, very visceral. And I think the Buddha is trying to point toward this, with this word direct knowing. Um, I think it's, what is it? I think it's Abhijanati. Anyway, it means, um, yeah, it means uh, no barrier to what you're experiencing. And that's, um, that's hard for humans. We like to conceptualize. We like to keep things at a little distance. We like to think about them <laughs> or something, not quite give ourselves to the experience, live them, like Val said. Whatever, whatever of those words works for you, um, that's what he's pointing toward. And so you start to see the courage needed to do practice, I feel, um, to really, you know, could I... Could I really open to my experience completely? And sometimes we think, well, some, but uh, I don't know about, I don't know about all of it. So that's kind of another thing that practice is pointing towards. The Buddha saying, you gotta, you have to really feel all of it eventually. Mm -hmm. But you know, please don't go home and think, okay, I'm just going to throw open all the floodgates. You don't have to do that, if, especially, you know, especially if you have trauma or other things in background it's a process but that's the sutta is meant to point us toward that he's very he's pretty clear if you don't do that you'll be incapable of destroying suffering mm -hmm. okay yeah sarah 
It also makes me think of the ways we distract ourselves. Yeah, a lot of that's about not feeling, feeling things. Sensations or emotions or thinking about certain things that might upset us. And yeah, that's right. Oh, I'll just get something to eat. I'll get my cell phone. I'll call a friend. I'll um, turn on the computer. You know, whatever. You're exactly right. So distraction is a is a strategy. Yeah, and so then. I've, I've certainly felt this in meditation is, you know, why does your mind wander off? Well, partly it's because it thought some interesting thing, and maybe partly it's because it's like, I'm not sure I really want to be here, <laughs> you know? So you start to get a sense of what you're up against <laughs> with this mind. Yeah. So I think also some of what we develop in practice is starting to discern what is the difference between actual experience and conceptual knowing. You know, we might start at the beginning saying, oh yeah, 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 I experienced that. And then, and we might have at the level that we could, but has anybody experienced over years of practice that the same thing comes back and you you thought you'd worked with it, and then like two years later it's like, oh, there that is again. Well, you got to some other layer of it, right? It's because you didn't actually completely experience it yet. The sutta doesn't say it directly, but other ones do. That you know, it's like when you, when you're done with something, you've really been able to completely experience it. And if you're not done with it yet, it's because you didn't quite fully experience it. So it's kind of humbling. You know, it's like I, I'm pretty sure I felt that. I felt the impact in my body, but it was still a little bit conceptual, clearly, because it didn't completely burn up. So this is, again, another process, and that's why things come back over time. The roots go deep. This also is, by the way, I mean, I'm talking a little tough, but this is also the birthplace for compassion, right? Is then to see this process and to see how hard it is to open and how, how strong experience is if we really try to open to it. And so the need for a lot of attention and then you look around and you say, wow, you know, look at what everyone's going through. Something like this, everyone's life has some kind of challenge. For me, that brings a lot of tenderness and compassion and patience for the world that we have to live in with each other. That we are living in. <laughs> that we're creating with our mind. <laughs> Let's really... T- okay. So um, I thought we'd do another short guided meditation, but we've been sitting for a while. Why don't we... Take a few minutes to stand up. Okay, so um, I just wanted to do a short guided meditation, almost more of a reflection. But let's, it'll give us a chance to settle down after our break. So find a, a sitting posture that's comfortable. Close your eyes and settle into the the bodily sensations again. Maybe taking a moment to relax on an out-breath, dropping the shoulders, softening the belly, the hands and feet, muscles of the face. And feeling the, the body. Noticing again the impermanence of the sensations 
Another word that's just as good for that is inconstancy. So things are fluctuating, even if they're not completely disappearing. A uh, certain sensation will tend to change a little bit, or a lot. Um, See if there's, in your mind, any sense of relief or ease with the truth of that change. You know, when you see that things are shifting and changing, it has a way of kind of ringing true. That's right. Of course it changes. At that moment you're not enchanted by the idea that there would be something permanent in the body. So resting in the ease of the flow of changing experience. truth that you don't know what body sensation is coming next. You don't know what sound is coming next, what smell. body's getting a little tired, a little sore from sitting, or it's just the mind is tired from a long day, so it's not totally pleasant. There's a sense of the ease within the normalcy of the flow. You're seeing clearly. You're not at this moment enchanted by the permanence, the perception of permanence, which is inaccurate. So you're disenchanted. Seeing clearly.
So that was just touching into getting into this sense of what is it that happens in the mind when we're really seeing things uh, accurately as a flow, as changing, arising and passing things. Um, it's probably not quite correct to equate disenchantment with seeing clearly. Those are slightly different steps in the mind, but I wanted to point out that it's not such a negative thing necessarily. And I found this nice essay by um, Andrew Olensky that I wanted to quote a little bit from. It's about, uh, it's about this word that we're working on. Um, okay, so here he goes. So there you are, happily reading the primary texts of early Buddhism in order to better understand the essential teachings of the Buddha. You get to the part that talks about a person practicing in accordance with the Dharma, knowing things directly as they really are, and seeing what is impermanent as impermanent with right view. Your head is nodding in affirmation. Yep, that's me, all right. <laughs> then, all of a sudden, you get to the next sentence. Therefore, one should abide in, the other, in utter disgust for the aggregates. Whoa, wait a minute. What's up with that? You think there must be something wrong here. How can the intimate awareness of moment-to-moment phenomena, the opening to states just as they are, lead to such a yucky response. We all know that the monks and nuns are encouraged to contemplate death, the disintegration of the body, and other, well, you know, monastic things, but surely a lay Buddhist vipassana practitioner deserves a more positive outlook on life from all this mindful conscious awareness. It's probably just one of those archaic translations, you think. And so you look up the passage in another, more modern translation, but there it is again. When a practitioner is practicing in accordance with the Dharma, he should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. Huh. Checking a third translation yields the term disregards. That's better, at least, and perhaps offers a glimmer of how the term might be pointing to something more profound than merely an aversive reaction. And yet another translation finally points you in a whole new direction. When one sees it thus, as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the aggregates. Ah, so these are all the different translations that have been used over the years, from utter disgust and revulsion up through disenchantment. So we're clearly not too clear on what this word is. The word is nibbida in Pali. And so then, I won't read this whole thing, but uh, he goes on, Andrew Olensky goes along on to talk about a story that illustrates the meaning of this. A dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months and is therefore bleached of any residual flesh or marrow. The dog gnaws on it for some time before he finally determines that he is not finding any satisfaction in the bone and he turns away from it in disgust. It is not that the bone is intrinsically disgusting, it is rather the case that the dog's raging desire for meat just will not be satisfied by the bone. He is enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously at the bone, but when he finally wakes up to the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer him satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted and spits it out. So that's kind of the concept. The word nibida actually means not finding. That's why he used that earlier. So it means you looked and looked and looked in form, in feeling, in perception, in volitional formations, and in consciousness for something that you can hold on to as eternally satisfying, and you don't find it. 
Why? Because they change, and you don't have control over them. And so then you kind of have to give up. (laughs) You have to say, this bone is not going to satisfy. So that's what's being pointed toward. With these, with these terms, that process in the mind. And we can't just get it conceptually. I mean, I've just told it to you conceptually, and yeah, the story of the dog is nice, but we have to really feel that in the body. It's like, oh, that's just not going to do it. How many more Twinkies are really going to do it? Or Starbucks coffee, or whatever it is that you like. Like, when's the one that's going to be, ah, oh, that's the one that really satisfied me? No. <laughs> so... Not that we shouldn't have coffee, or maybe you shouldn't have Twinkies, but I don't know. So, so let's go on then to 2296, the one about the eight, the lump of cow dung. Yeah, you have a question. Yeah, comment on that one. Uh, I mean, the dog and the the dog and the bone or yeah. the coffee, you know. It's. I think though that it is a very subtle line there, for me at least, that I need to see. One is not completely disregard and and basically, what's the word I want to say, and, and basically throw away, you know, something because, because it will not be satisfying in the long term. But rather, I, I think that for me, at least, is to enjoy the coffee uh-huh. while I have it. Yeah. But but, but not, not be attached to, get, to it. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that's a good point in that probably this teaching is aimed to counterbalance a tendency in the mind to not really see that it's not going to be ultimately satisfying. That's the more likely error that we're going to make mm-hmm. than not enjoying the coffee sufficiently because we like our coffee. Mm-hmm. And so... I think, you know, a totally balanced teaching would say, yeah, well, it's pleasant, just experience the pleasantness of it. But when it goes away, don't suffer for that. Um, Or if you get your, I mean, the real test is you get your coffee and you take a sip and they gave you dishwater instead. (laughs) And it's horrific. And at that moment, do you get angry and run and throw it on the person at Starbucks? You know, that's, that's attachment to the pleasure of the coffee. And so... You know, we can check our mind, um, but probably this thing toward, and it's not that this is something that you need to, I didn't read this whole essay, but it goes on to say this isn't something that you need to manufacture. It's actually describing something that comes about naturally. If you just keep watching, the coffee ends. The coffee is not (laughs) completely, you know, the coffee is not eternal. The actually just watching impermanence is sufficient, right? We just read a sutta about that that says if you just keep watching the arising and passing, that's going to be good enough because the mind itself is going to get at some deeper level. This isn't really doing it for me. Not like it's bad and I'll throw it away because, again, we don't get rid of the aggregates. We're still going to have to eat until our very last days. Um, so, yeah, please do keep enjoying your coffee. <laughs> Or whatever it is yeah, for you. Like yeah. Yeah. Can you really quick, how did you spell Nibita? N I B B I D A. Jace. Sorry, it took me a second. There was another word that I saw somebody use, which was exasperated. Exasperated. I thought that was an interesting word. For disenchantment? Yeah. Exasperated. Okay, so that's maybe if you're if you're one of the kind of person who's trying, like the dog, trying to get something out of them 
uh, if you're kind of a greed type, um, I could see you getting exasperated. So you just have to give up because it's not, it's not giving what you want, basically, to the degree that you want. You really feel the desire for them. Other people have, yeah, more an issue with aversion or something else. But yeah, that's an interesting one. I hadn't heard that one. I like it. All right, who would like to start reading a lump of cow dung? Twenty-two ninety-six. Then a certain bhikkhu, sitting to one side, that bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, is there any form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and that will remain the same just like eternity itself? <laughs> is there, Venerable Sir, any feeling, any perception, any volitional formations, any consciousness that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and it will remain the same just like eternity itself? Bhikkhu, there is no form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and it will remain the same just like eternity itself. There is no feeling, no perception, no volitional formations, no consciousness that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and it will remain the same just like eternity itself. Okay, good. Um, so he's pretty clear about that. Read the one about the cow dung too, the next paragraph. Then the Blessed One took up a little lump of cow dung in his hand and said to the bhikkhu, Bhikkhu, there is not even this much individual existence that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and it will remain the same just like eternity itself. If there was this much individual existence that was permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering could not be discerned. But because there's not even this much individual existence that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, this living of the holy life is the complete destruction of suffering. Of suffering is discerned. And so it's interesting, right? He says, if there were anything in the universe that were permanent, freedom would not be possible. So that's pretty interesting. You know, we usually, I don't know, how does that sit for you? You don't have to know that directly in your heart. You'd be free if you did, but um, that impermanence is actually required. He's sort of just asserting it, but um, I think it's interesting to contemplate. It's interesting to contemplate. seems that he's saying that contemplating impermanence is the skillful means to discerning um, the end of suffering. Yeah. He says that in many different ways, in many different places, and here he is saying it again. And when it says, by the way, living the holy life, we could think, we could substitute walking the path, you know, for those of us who are lay people. Although we can live a holy life, it's yeah. just, if you don't like that phrase. Okay, so I don't think we're going to have time to read all of the 84,000 things, but I think we should read some of it because it's pretty cool. So <coughs> who, would, who would like to start reading that section? Yeah, Heidi. In the past, Bhikkhu, I was a head-anointed Katiya king 
I had 84,000 cities, the chief of which was the capital, Kusavati. I had 84,000 palaces, the chief of which was the palace named Dhamma. I had 84,000 halls with peak roofs, the chief of which was the hall named the Great Array. I had 84,000 couches made of ivory, of hardwood, of gold and silver, decked with long-haired coverlets, embroidered with flowers, with choice spreads made of antelope hides, with red awnings overhead and red cushions on both ends. Cool, 84,000 of those. <laughs> you could read one more paragraph. I had 84,000 bull elephants with golden ornaments and golden banners covered with nets of golden thread, the chief of which was the royal bull elephant named Uposasa. I had 84,000 steeds with golden ornaments and golden banners covered with nets of golden thread, the chief of which was the royal steed named Balahaka. I had 84,000 chariots of golden ornaments and golden banners covered with nets of golden thread, the chief of which was the chariot named Ejayanta. Okay, and it goes on and to more and more. And 84,000 women, oh my God, <laughs> how could you have time for them all? <laughs> and so, and so then, um, why don't we skip down to the one that says, um, oh, oh, cows and garments, yeah, milk pails of bronze, that's pretty cool. Um, and so then he goes on, of those 84,000 cities, there was only one city. Who would like to read that paragraph? Yeah, Of those 84,000 cities, because there was only one city in which I resided at that time, the capital, Kusavati. Of those 84,000 palaces, there was only one palace in which I resided at, at the time, the palace named Dama. Of those 84,000 halls with peak roof, there was only one hall which, with peak roof in which I resided at that time, the hall named the Great Array. Of those 84,000 couches, there was only one couch I, I used at that time, one made either of ivory or the hard, hardwood of, or of gold or of silver. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so he's like, I had 84,000 of them, but really, I could only use one at a time. I mean, you know. Yeah. And so, and so, um, so then it goes down, and then let's just read the last paragraph of this. Okay, Maggie. Thus, Bhikkhus, all those formations have passed, ceased, changed. So impermanent are formations, Bhikkhus, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough, Bhikkhus, to feel revulsion or dis disenchantment <laughs> toward all formations, enough to become dispassionate toward them, enough to be liberated from them. Yeah. So what's being pointed to with this obviously overdone example. All these things pass away. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you, 84,000 isn't enough. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to be gone anyway. But we still have, a, it's, it's pointing toward that feeling we have, like, oh, just a little more would be, would, that would be enough, you know. If, if one car isn't quite enough, maybe two cars would do it. Maybe that would be better. 
Um, and so, you know, we can say abstractly it's ridiculous, but we have that tendency in our heart, right, to want to kind of gather. And so he points out, first of all, that he only used one of them really at a time. So there's sort of a uh, obviously a need for it. And then, more importantly, he points toward the impermanence of them. You know, no matter how many you have, they're still impermanent. And then at the end, and then he says, it's enough to get disenchanted to, you know, if you have, if you see that clearly enough, you'll realize it doesn't matter. It's just, these things are just impermanent. Not easy for us to live necessarily when our stuff is being taken away, for example, or we're downsizing or, you know, we lose, something gets stolen from us. Um, that brings in other things, but... Uh, it points really toward the impermanence of things, the instability. I was on retreat one time at um, IMS, and the um, the water went out. It's like 90 people on retreat, and, mm-hmm. and they're trying to cook for all of us, and we had no water, and so they trucked in big trucks of water. Um, and Joseph Goldstein, who was one of the teachers, said, Something like this is this is a manifestation of the unreliability and impermanence. You, know, you expect when you turn on the faucet, there's the water there, but if there isn't, whoa, you know that's right. It's impermanent. It's conditioned. It, you know, it, it may not happen. <laughs> there was some dukkha. <laughs> so, I think what we're seeing here is some different faces of the word disenchantment. Um, to, get, to starting to get a sense, it could be, it can be, um, this this understanding, like Heidi was pointing to, just knowing, oh, this is impermanent; it's going to change. So you, you're not uh, you're not getting caught up in the permanence of something. You, you see, for its changing nature, or it can be like this: this kind of weariness of like, oh, you know, even eighty four thousand isn't enough, or eighty four thousand is probably more of a headache than having one. <laughs> I'd rather just have <laughs> one that works, actually. Uh, and so there's there can also be a sense of weariness that we get with the aggregates. Um, uh, yeah, aggravation. <laughs> what was the word you used? Exasperation. Yeah, so it's just a sense of, oh, enough, enough already. Or sometimes teachers will point at the fact that these things are so ongoing. It's like every day you have to eat, you have to clean your body in some way, even if you don't shower every day. You have to dress it, you have to... Um, pee every day, you know, all this stuff that you just have to do um, to keep it all going. And if you really reflect on how much of your day is spent just keeping all this stuff going, it's really kind of depressing. (laughs) It doesn't have to be depressing, but it's disenchanting, right? You start seeing, yeah, it's like exhausting, exactly. And so it's like, and now, you know, we we still have to do it, but um, there can maybe be more lightness around it. I mean, these teachings are not intended to make us depressed or discouraged or give up, uh, except in the good sense of it, but to get a real sense of what the condition of being human is, and then therefore turn ourselves toward maybe what's more important than getting caught up in all this stuff that we do have to do. The caught-upness is the suffering. So... um, that brings us then to this final verse, which is the verse from the um, 37 practices of the Bodhisattva. Uh, who would like to read those four lines at the end there? How about Kara? I haven't read yet. 
Where is it? Um, that was the last reading, right? It was the last reading, so it might be on a printout. Or if you don't have it, oh, I'll get somebody get else. No. Okay. Okay, Sherry. Sorry, Jace, I keep seeing your hand there, but no. Okay. Locked up in the prison of their own patterning, whom can ordinary gods protect? Who can you count on for refuge? Go for refuge in the three jewels. This is the practice of a bodhisattva. Okay, so this uses somewhat poetic or figurative language. Um, what do you think this is referring to? What is the first two lines referring to? Locked up in the prison of their own patterning, whom can ordinary gods protect? Who are the ordinary gods? I have a question first. Oh, okay. Who is there? Is it? It refers to oh, it refers to the ordinary to the gods. gods. Yes, they're they're referring to gods. Okay. Um, yeah. So who are these ordinary gods that have patterning? Oh, so the unenlightened. The unenlightened. Yes, yeah, surely it's unenlightened. Or oh, the things that we Google for refuge. I mean, the eating, the yeah. the things, the beautiful. Right? Yeah. So uh, it's sometimes people say, well, I haven't. I haven't right. officially gone for refuge in the Triple Gem, but you've gone for refuge in something. Yeah. Everybody takes something as a refuge, often our body or our pleasures, our eating pleasures. Uh, in this society, people often have refuge in their job. Uh, we very much identify with what we do in the world. Or, Facebook. You know, Facebook, okay. Yeah. How many friends you have on Facebook, all of that, that identity of um, following all of that. So these are, the word gods is meant to be, I think, a little provocative, you know, that we bow to them, we, um, we idolize them, we make them our, our, our important thing, our what? Our idols. Our idols, yeah. Mm -hmm. These things um, that are ruling our lives. Dory? I can't resist thinking of, is it the 1%, the 2% of our society that, that has as much stuff? Mm -hmm. And seventy percent of the rest of the people. Something like that. Yeah, yeah it's whatever the. I keep being reminded because our society. They have eighty-four thousand couches. That's right. Yeah, That's right. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, or, you know, we also may take as a god um, our health. You know, people get very into um, their exercise regimen, and they are very into that, or whatever you're into, basically if it's in an attached way. Not that we should have no interests or whatever, we're people. But um, So if we've made it into a god, though, then it's become our refuge. And so um, the patterning is the habit that we get into around that, that habit that defines our energy, our habitual way of being around these things that we've made into our self, basically. And so, it, um, but it says, who can they really protect? Are these really protections? these things that can go away. Almost everyone in this room has, I bet everybody in this room, has experienced their health going away at some point. Who hasn't been sick, pretty sick? And then you realize, oh, this is not a refuge. Um, or your car, your house, your job, you could be fired tomorrow. Well, it's Saturday tomorrow. But you know, <laughs> you never know. So, you know, um, these things. And so it says, this is not protection. And so then it says, who can you count on for refuge? Go for refuge in the three jewels. 
And so this is pointing, I didn't want to leave us on this note of everything is impermanent, unreliable, you know, you should be disenchanted with everything, nothing can be counted on. There, there, this, this practice says, actually there are things that you can count on that are better, better than all those other things that are changing and are not really part of your identity. How about your, your awareness, you know, your presence in the world, so that's sometimes what people use for the Buddha, or if you're inspired by the historical Buddha. There was a guy who figured this out. Darn it, I'm going to do it too, you know, maybe that's inspiring. Whatever Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha mean to you, Dharma, the teachings. So remembering these suttas, remembering that when you want that third piece of cake that you don't need 84,000 pieces of cake, whatever <laughs> comes to mind, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't even want 84,000 pieces of cake, I'm feeling sick just thinking about that. So, you know, um, some, some way that the teachings support our lives, or coming to sutta class. Yeah, Heidi. What is the, uh, the 37 practices of the Bodhisattva? That is actually a particular teaching um, from the Tibetan tradition. There's a bunch of translations okay. of it. This is one of them. You, if you look that up online, you'll find there's a bunch of them. Who wrote that? Tokme, do you know, Margaret? Um, Tokme is his first name. I forget his last name. Um, Tibetan monk, and it was his summary of his practice. He, Is it like a medieval? Yeah, it was written many hundreds of years ago, yeah. but it's been translated into English. It's pretty good. Um, yeah. So there are more reliable refuges as we begin to realize that the ground that we were relying on is not so stable, um, there are other options, and so there's a way to take refuge in the practice, in the path, in the notion that we want to be free of the grasping that's causing the suffering. So, um, yeah, so there, there's help. Mm. <laughs> there's help in doing this process. And, um, yeah, I wanted to make sure we were left with that. Next time we'll look in a little more detail at this self Thing, these ordinary gods and these ways that we construct our identity. Um, are there any last questions? I'm going to pass around the homework also. It's just a, re- a reflection to do as well as I'll send some readings. Any questions, Brad? He said the palace. The chief palace was the Dharma. I thought Dhamma was another word for Dharma. Yeah, I don't know why the palace was named Dhamma. Maybe it was the Dhamma, the palace of Dhamma. They were giving it a fancy name so that it would seem important. I don't know. But that was the name somehow. Yeah. The other yeah, the other names, I'm, they may have meaning. I don't know them, what they refer to either. I hope there's enough of those. If not, we'll copy more. Hey, you, you can send it to me. Uh, everybody got everybody one. Everybody got one? Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next Oh, wait, there's one more. Maggie. Oh, this is the um, normal thing that happens at the end. Oh, yeah, okay. Which is so we're the, done. Um, our teacher. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.